0: Well, this morning we're going to continue in our our series, Christ Our King, Songs of Truth. And so the last few weeks we've been walking through and looking at the biblical foundation of kind of well-known or traditional hymns uh, or songs. And the song that we are looking at this morning is this song, Christmas Offering, and it's a, a simple song, it's a praise song, but in its simplicity, it is exactly what God has called us to in our own lives, of offering ourselves completely unto Him. During the early 2000s, Paul Veloche, who was the writer of this, this song, he wrote a song called Offering. It was apart from this, this song, Christmas Offering. And he wrote it in direct response to a problem he noticed within the body of believers which, with which he was fellowshiping. He was leading worship on a Sunday, and he had asked the body to, to bow in prayer as they were uh, singing together and to, to, to move into a place of praying before the Lord. And as he was praying, as he was leading and praying, what he began to notice was that people were distracted. They were looking around the room. They were... Uh, they were disengaged with worship, and it seemed as if that even when the singing was occurring, they kind of just sat by and were enjoying the, the the music, but not participating in worship, not declaring praise before the Lord and so in that moment, he decided in that moment to basically offer a rebuke to the body, and he exhorted them. And, regarding their responsibility, he challenged them and he he came to them and he told them that they were not to come together in the gathering, the the gathering that occurs on a weekly basis of, of believers in Christ. They were not to come with a passive attitude, but rather they were to come as participants, offering themselves before the Lord in worship. That his responsibility was not to lead worship, but his responsibility was to help lead them into worship. His job was simply to play music as a part of encouraging them and bringing them and helping them there into a time of praise before the Lord. And so, in that moment, he said, I need to To take some time and actually come up with those words. And he challenged them to prepare their hearts before they came every Sunday. To take a few minutes or more if needed to sit quietly before the Lord. And to actively offer themselves in worship as they came at the foot of the cross. And so during the next week as he penned the words this song, he the words the song offering and for the next several weeks they as a church began singing this song as a weekly reminder that they were to come prepared to worship God that worship was their responsibility and as they continued to sing this and do this as a repeated reminder in the body he tells of the fact that as Christmas neared he began to think in preparation for Christmas, about the Christmas season, the Advent season. And what he shared was all of a sudden it came to mind that this offering, this worship, this giving of self to the Lord was actually what the Magi had done. And so he began to write this new verse that would become the first verse of this song, Christmas Offering, simply in addition to this simple song, Offering. So in 2003, that song was finalized and and put together, and it was his desire that that verse would declare the truth of Christ's birth, and it would actually be a demonstration of the worship of the magi and the shepherds and the angels of the Lord, that we would be reminded that God has called all to worship the Lord. And so today, Christmas offering has become one of the more well-known Christmas praise songs. And that simplicity is a wonderful reminder that God has called us to live lives that are submitted and surrendered to him And although there's not one single portion of Scripture from which this song is derived, it's a totality of what Scripture teaches, Hebrews 1 through 14 clearly reveals why Christ is worthy of our worship. You see, Jesus Christ is the source of our redemption and the full, complete revelation of God. And so, because of that, He is worthy of worship. So, this morning... Understanding the supremacy of Jesus Christ enables us to worship Him as King, giving our lives completely to Him, and declaring His truth and praise. Understanding the supremacy of Jesus Christ enables us to worship Him as King, giving our lives completely to Him, and declaring His truth and praise. This understanding of who Jesus is, his position, his place, his purpose, and his person will move us to worship and worship in his truth. Hebrews was written to the Jews. Jews who had believed on Christ for salvation. And as persecution worsened during the mid to to later part of the first century, these Jews, these believing Jews, were no longer accepted by anybody. They weren't accepted by practicing Jews, and they weren't accepted by Gentiles. And they were under persecution. They were experiencing trial. In fact, at the time that Hebrews was written, it would only be a few years that the temple would fall and collapse. But at this time, believing Jews were were kind of the outcasts. They didn't have a place to land. They were accepted by no one. I remember witnessing to a friend who had been immersed in homosexual lifestyle. He'd gone to uh, Brigham Young University. His family was a devout Mormon family. And so as he turned his back on Mormonism and left Mormonism and, as he said, moved into and immersing himself in the, the homosexual lifestyle in San Francisco for the next 20 years, he was rejected both by his family as a result of this. But he said, as I came out of that lifestyle and I gave my life to Christ, I now had no community except for the community of believers because I was no longer accepted by my parents because they weren't following a faith that said that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. And he said, All oh, the friends that I had, well, they no longer accepted me because I was actually repenting of something that I believed and knew to be true as sin. And so, therefore, was calling them sinners and calling them to account just by my repentance and belief on Christ. And so, he really had no home. His community was around him. And the temptation, as he shared, to just give back in. To just find a way to fit in someplace with those previous relationships was huge. In fact, it was not only just huge, but it was actually vying for his own soul. It would just be a whole lot easier to give back into this temptation. It would be a whole lot easier just to say I believe something that I don't so that I can be accepted by my family. this is how the jews were feeling those that had confessed jesus as lord they weren't accepted by traditional jews or orthodox jews and they weren't accepted by the gentiles and so under this persecution they begin to move towards this apathy or heresy this kind of laziness or just kind of like ah eh, does it really matter and that apathy was actually leading to heresy, to false doctrines or false understandings about who God is and who Jesus is. In fact, in Hebrews 2.1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. After he shares this passage that we're going to be looking at, the instruction was, we have to pay close attention to this or we will drift. If we are moving away from our understanding of who Jesus is, we will drift. So what was the author wanting the Jewish believers to hang on to in the midst of their circumstances? What does he want us to hang on to in the midst of our circumstances? What did he actually want them to pay much closer attention to? Well, this is the question that our passage is addressing this morning. And so verse 1 and 2 begins, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So here's what's going on. The prophets shared the word of God. But Christ is the word of God. Christ is the word of God. See, the prophets were sharing about God. Jesus was revealing who God is because he is God. And so what's happening is he's pulling them back and he's saying, listen, you've elevated the prophets. That's okay. It's okay. You can have, you can honor them, and you can respect them. But know that Christ is far superior to the prophets. The prophets were telling you about God. Jesus is revealing to you who God is because he is God. David Guzik puts it this way. He says, it isn't so much that Jesus brought a message from the Father. He is a message from the Father. The idea that Jesus is far more than a latest or best prophet, he's revealed something no other prophet could the true nature and character of God. And so, what we see here then are five truths in this passage which reveal Christ is worthy of worship. You see, for them, they were actually beginning to say, listen, should we just worship God? I mean, Christ, is he really worthy of our worship? This particular passage is actually the basis for many of the Christian cults that exist. They actually change the wording in this passage, and they move away from the deity of Christ. In fact, Jehovah's Witness cross the street. If you were to share with many of them that they will bow at the foot of Christ, they will reject that, and they will reject it forcefully. The truth is, in many ways, Christian cults become like the Pharisees of yesterday. They focus on works and rigidity, and they reject the deity of Jesus. They reject that Jesus is actually God. Why is it important that we cling to our understanding of who Jesus is? Because if we lose our understanding of who Jesus is, we will drift as well. If we lose our understanding of who Jesus is, we will no longer serve him sacrificially with the power of his grace. So verse 1 continues. It says, He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, who created the world is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power, making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, superior to angels. There's seven attributes of Jesus that's listed there, all of which are attributes of God. So Jesus and his revelation is greater than all created beings. The first reason that Jesus is worthy of worship is because Jesus and his revelation is greater than all created beings. John 1 says simply this, and you heard it just a few minutes ago. But John 1 tells us this about who Jesus is. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was part of creating the world. Jesus existed and has always existed The Son has always existed. His revelation is greater than what the prophets could offer. The prophets offered what God had shared and as a message to his people, but in the front with Jesus, not only did they offer the truth, not only did Jesus provide the truth, but he provided it as the truth. It says here that he was the heir of all things. God had given him authority over all things. It says that he created the world. Jesus was not created. The Son was not created. But rather he was the creator. It says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Himself reflected the very glory of God because He is the glory of God. It's His glory. It says that he's the exact imprint of His nature exact imprint of his nature Colossians 2.9 adds for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily when you look at Jesus you don't have to look any farther it's no longer revealed through the law it's revealed through Jesus we can look at Jesus and say he is the full representation of who God is in his holiness, in his righteousness in his power His power over death, his victory on the cross. This is the Jesus that we serve. The full deity of God resides within him, he's the exact imprint. We wonder sometimes. We wonder, what is God doing in certain situations? How would God respond or react? We don't have to look any farther than Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint. Jesus becomes the one that is the one who lives within us as we repent and believe on him, who empowers us, who works within us. And he's the exact imprint. How did Jesus handle persecution? Yep, that's how God handled persecution. How does God deal with unholiness? Look no further than Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation the perfect revelation of God. John 14:9 through 11 and I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Because Jesus made this point clear. He said this speaking to Philip, "Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. And God's Word has revealed who Jesus is. And that's why, that's why we can say that the Son cannot compare to the glory of your love. It's not man's glory, it's God's glory. In fact, the Son is something that God created its brightness doesn't even hold a candle's wick to the glory of God. The radiance of his glory. The radiance of his glory. Warren Wiersbe adds this. He says, Christ is to the Father with the rays of the sun are to the Son. He is the radiance of God's glory. As it's impossible to separate the rays from the sun, it is also impossible to sep- separate Christ's glory from the nature of God. Jesus is not some one-third of who God is. He is the fullness of God. God, one essence in three persons. It's not one-third, one-third, one-third. It's not just today I feel like being Jesus and tomorrow I feel like being the Holy Spirit. It's that his deity, his essence resides in all three persons as one. The beauty of that. The beauty that the deity of God resides in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit equally. Not broken apart, but together. The second way that Jesus is worthy of worship is that God the Father affirmed Jesus as his son. So God affirmed Jesus as his son. Notice what he says in verse 5. In verse 5 he begins to ask this question and he compares them to the angels because angels were important in Jewish culture. They had been present when The revelations were being brought to the prophets. The angel of the Lord would speak to the prophets. And so you can hear that there must have been this underlying question with, maybe Jesus, maybe he's either one of the prophets. He's just smarter than them. Or maybe he's like an angel. And that gets put down right away. Because he says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's quoted directly from Psalm 2.7. What he's pointing out here is that Jesus is the begotten son of God. What does begotten mean? Begotten means belonging to in birth. So the idea is, a begotten son is different from an adopted son, depending on who gave birth or who was part of creation. We use terms like biological today, biological versus adopted. What God is saying is, this is my son, and he carries my deity within him. He doesn't have somebody else's DNA, but rather he has, in essence, the DNA of God. So he's saying, I'm his father, and I can prove it, because his deity is at work within me or within him. And so God affirms him as a son. Well, we know in Mark 1 specifically that when Jesus goes and is baptized, we see this perfect interplay between the Trinity. All God, one essence, one God, three persons. In verse 9 of Mark chapter 1, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit dispending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God affirms, God the Father affirms Jesus as his son, worthy of worship. Worthy of worship. Jesus is affirmed by God as the Son with the Spirit of God descending upon him, all three working at the same time. We don't really have a lot of good examples of what the Trinity is. Everything that we offer up as in a tangible example falls short. One essence, three persons unified, together. God working out his nature and will before man in that one moment, displaying how the Son and the Spirit and the Father interact as one. That first chorus says, we bring an offering of worship to our king no one on earth deserves the praises that we sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. O oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. There's no greater point in a child's life when a father looks and says to his child, you are my beloved son. It's amazing what we remember, isn't it? one of the hard things if we have dads that have kind of gone astray and we equate our earthly fathers with our heavenly fathers. God has designed us as earthly fathers to be, to be the presence of God in people's lives, specifically our children's lives. He desires that we might reflect the very truth of God as Christ is living within us. But we can't do that perfectly And that's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that has to work within us. And that's why his grace becomes sufficient because we're going to mess up. But how much more when we have a heavenly father look at us and says, You are my beloved son. This was a position of honor being offered to Jesus from the father. I have a vivid memory in my eyes. And it's something that I've tried even with my own boys because it was, made an impression on my own life. I remember playing in a baseball game as a 12-year-old. And I remember it was my dad at the time, and my dad still is. He's actually fairly quiet. And I remember hitting a home run, hitting this ball out of the park. And I rounded second base, and what I heard was his voice, which caused me to look over. And it was the first time in my life that I had seen my dad jump. Like he was literally jumping on the top of these bleachers, throwing his fist up, going, yeah! And I remember, I'm 44, and I'm still talking about it, right? 32 years ago, and I still talk about it. Why? Because there's an impression that's made when you're affirmed by your father. God affirms his son, Jesus, as the Messiah and honors him. And so we are called to honor him as well because the father has honored the son. The third reason that God is worthy of our worship or that Jesus is worthy of our worship is the angels worship and serve Jesus in his power. It's not just us as lowly humans that that come in a place where we're supposed to worship, but even the angels worship Jesus. It says, let the angels worship him. It's a command. The angels are commanded to worship the Messiah. More importantly, it says that Jesus is the one that gives them their power. In the same way that Jesus empowers us, he empowers the angels. And for a short period of time, Jesus lowered himself below the angels, but God was quick to remind, listen, simply because he humbled himself for the sake of humanity, he did not lose his rightful position as Lord of your life and Lord over all. And so because the angels worship him, we can be confident that he is Lord over all. He is Lord over all. That's why we can sing. We can sing that chorus of we bring an offering of worship to our king. No one on earth deserves the praises that we sing. There's no one like him. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. And then that that chorus again of the second part. No longer is it we, but it's I. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due, O Lord. I bring an offering to you. the third or excuse me the fourth reason is that Jesus is God who reigns as eternal and righteous creator Jesus is God who reigns as eternal and righteous creator it says this but the son he says your throne o god is forever and ever the father calls the son god the Father calls the Son God. This is important. In fact, God's first commandment is there shall be no other gods beside me. So for God to actually call, or God the Father to call the Son God, if he's really not is to place another God beside himself of which he won't do, nor will he tolerate. He won't tolerate it, let alone do it. It, it affirms the fact that there is one God in three persons. Isaiah 45, 21 through 22 says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared of it at all? Was I not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For God to declare that His Son, God the Father, declares that His Son is God, is to affirm that they are one. Matthew 28, 19 also affirms this when it says that those who come to Christ are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, an equality across the three. Notice it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's what he's saying. Because God rules in righteousness, we have the hope and joy of future righteousness and joy. Because his kingdom is established with a righteous scepter, and because he rules in that way, he will redeem his creation, and he will make it new. Notice what he says coming down. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here's what he's saying. Yes, all of creation is fallen as a result of sin. And even as Romans 8 tells us, that creation groans for the glory of God to return and to be made new. But here's what he's bringing to light. He's saying, even in that, even though, God, you are going to restore that, you have never been imperfect. Everything will change but you. You are always the same because you are eternal. And you are the one who has created. And in your righteousness, in your holiness, you brought about this creation and you will restore it. This is God that we serve. See, Jesus isn't this manby-pamby, weak hippie. He's a creator overall who doesn't just look for moral ambiguity, but he leads and rules in righteousness. See, sometimes our culture has adopted this idea that because Jesus is love, then he's just morally ambiguous. He's okay with anything because tolerance is love. And as Christians, we can buy off on that. I just got to love them. I just got to love them. Go one step further. We need to love them in truth. And so sometimes loving in truth is no longer the affirmation and tolerance of sinful behavior, but is the direct confrontation of sinful behavior so that you might save or be a part, that God's truth might work in their life and they might be saved in Christ, which is the most loving thing ever we come to Christ in love and truth in grace and truth and because he is God he rules in righteousness Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's the thing. When we submit to Christ and we offer ourselves to Christ, what he is promising us is more fulfillment than any temptation we might ever experience or seek to find here. Whatever you wrestle with in the way of sin, And whatever you think that you so desire within your flesh, know that that pleasure will never meet the pleasure of being fully submitted to God. It won't. And that pleasure that we pursue in this life will fade. It'll bring about destruction. It'll bring about loss of relationship. It'll bring about heartache and pain. It may not at first, in fact, at first it may be pleasurable and bring excitement and bring passion, but it will fade. And it will fade because it was never designed to sustain you. See, Jesus in verse 2 and 3 is described as, in essence, upholding his creation by the power of his word. Jesus is our sustainer, and if Jesus is the only thing that sustains, we will grow weary and tired of the old, and no matter how much in our flesh we cry out and say, if I only have this, or gosh, I sure would love to give in to this, know that it will never bring the fulfillment and pleasure that comes from a life submitted to Christ. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, every man must choose his world. True believers have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. This should mean we have no interest in or appetite for the present sinful world system. This is why we can declare that I bring an offering of worship to my king. See, sometimes we keep it with we But it needs to be an I. That's where it begins. I come to a place where I choose to be submitted to the Lord and then let Him work in my life through His power as the sustainer. Finally, the final reason that Jesus is worthy of worship is because Jesus is exalted in the finished work of the cross. Jesus is exalted in the finished work of the cross. Notice what it says. It says, "Into to which the angels, as he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's he doing? Jesus is coming and sitting at the right hand of God. His work is finished. Now, his redemption is still yet to come, but his saving work is finished. In fact, in John 19.30, as he dies, as he departs the cross, as he dies on the cross, and he is then dead and buried, and then three days later rises again, right before he dies, he says, it is finished. It's the only gospel account that says that. Why? Because what he's declaring is the redemptive work is done. He has provided the atoning sacrifice that is sufficient for all. And God exalts him. Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven with the promise of his return. His saving work is finished. His saving work is finished. No other sacrifice is needed. No other lambs need to be butchered. Nothing else needs to be done except for people to repent and believe on Jesus. Romans 1 3 through 4 says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Here's what he's saying. His resurrection declares to all of us that he is God. Make no bones about it. That's what they're saying. They're saying don't come up with some fancy way of saying that some magic thing happened where he was raised from the dead. Or don't believe that God just raises human, that Jesus got off the cross and then came back. Remember that drift that we talked about? When I don't believe that Jesus is actually God, that God's deity, that he is three in one, I begin to develop things like that because I have to deal with the cross. And so therefore, God must have plucked Jesus off the cross momentarily before his death, and he never really did die. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that because he died and was risen again, it declares that he is God. It is the declaration that he is God. So, as a result of that, when we recognize that it is God at work, that Jesus is truly God, we can sing chorus three this simple way. We are an offering of worship to our king. No one on earth deserves the praises that we sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you do. O Lord, we bring an offering to you. And then that phrase, we are an offering to you. My question for you this morning is do you really believe that Jesus is the living God? Because if you do, no longer are we left to give God the second best or the third best. No longer are we looking to be pleasure seekers or find our satisfaction in sin. But may we find joy in the living God as revealed through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we just prepare our hearts to sing this song together, may this be our prayer that we are bringing an offering to you. May our prayer be, Lord, may it be that we are giving of ourselves completely, no longer hanging on to the things of this world, but being free, knowing that because you are God, that you will rule righteously, that you will reign righteously as the eternal creator who will restore all things. And we ask this in your name. Amen.